This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. Ken Leo is an award-winning speculative fiction author, futurist and translator, and is one of the most exciting contemporary American storytellers working in or out of any genre. His novel Speaking Bones, the fourth in his Dandelion Dynasty series, has just come out in the UK. The first is called The Grace of Kings, and I recommend starting there, or If you want a smaller commitment, his short story collections, The Hidden Girl and The Paper Menagerie, are also really good. He joined me last week to talk about the role of speculative fiction in understanding the present and the power of technology to change how we live. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, it's 2022. Elon Musk is promising to colonise Mars... We have supercomputers in our pockets. We have AI beginning to take away our jobs. We've just lived through a pandemic, which is one of the most common science fictional scenarios. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that science fiction and reality are becoming increasingly indistinguishable. What does the genre that you write in teach us about the world we inhabit? And how can you continue to operate as a speculative author in such a fast-moving climate? So um, that is an excellent question. And the fact is, I don't view speculative fiction as very much about the future at all. You know, this is not a view that everybody in the genre shares, but I certainly don't think it's about the future. I think speculative fiction has always been at its best when it recognizes itself as a lens on the present, as a way to filter the present, to highlight aspects and details that we otherwise miss in the mundaneness of realism. So what I mean is this. I also work as a futurist, where I go around to speak to governments and universities and corporations about telling stories of the future and uh, how to construct and narrate uh, a desirable future into being. And what I found over time is that science fiction has actually a very bad track record of predicting the future uh, as such. Uh, Science fiction is good at extrapolating present trends, but the history of technology and of social evolution is such that the dynamic and the interactivity of all the factors make it such that 
it is impossible to predict the future per se. Predicting the future is a loser's game, uh, something I often say. So science fiction, if, if it takes itself as a kind of future prediction game, is not very good at its job and is not very interesting per se. But as a way of highlighting present trends and extrapolating aspects of present reality that we're not paying attention to, um, that it's very good at. And, and I think that's where science fiction and speculative fiction in general ends up serving its purpose. Do you ever worry that someone in Silicon Valley or elsewhere will take an idea that you've written about, where you've extrapolated some horrifying thing from an existing or theoretical technology and attempt to realize it in the real world? You know, do you, do you ever feel that as a speculative author and futurist as you mentioned earlier, that you have a special moral responsibility not to come up with anything too evil. Yeah, I don't think that's the thing I worry about, really. Um, um, you know, as I explain, as an engineer, I'm, I'm much more attuned to the way that technology is not a fixed thing, but rather a process of evolution. So um, I think one common mistake people make is that they think that technology is something that's evil. You know, somebody invents a thing that's evil and that changes the world. That's not how that works. Uh, technology by itself is never really good or evil. It's it's nothing more than a, a, a multiplier of force. It just magnifies human nature and human capability. And whether you choose to use that for good or evil, it's entirely up to people. One of the things that I think people should keep in mind is that technology is a dynamic process. I always tell people to focus on the roots of technology. Um, it's techni, which is skill, and logia, which is a discourse. Technology is really a discourse about skill, about art, about craft. So the emphasis here is not on a thing made, but on a process of making. That's what I want people to focus on. It is a conversation that we have um, about skill. That's what technology really is. Ultimately, the way I want people to think about technology is it is not merely rocket engines and computer chips and some new AI face recognition app. Uh, those are just examples of pieces of, of, of discourse. Technology itself is really an ongoing dynamic process. Somebody invents something. The full implications of what that thing really is will not be made clear until many years later as people learn to live with it, to counter it, to invent on top of it, to thwart it, to promote it, to uh, defeat it, to twist it, to modify it. Sir Tim Berners-Lee invented the web as we know it. Do you think he could have predicted that in a couple of decades, the by far the most popular use of the web is to share pictures of ourselves. Um, and the way to make money on it is to trick people into downloading a piece of code to mine cryptocurrency. I mean, th these are not uses that he ever could have foreseen. And that's the way technology is. The inventor thinks that they know what the technology will be used for and what it is about, but they don't. They just don't. Uh, both the good and bad consequences of, of a piece of technology will not be made clear until users really get into it. So what I tell people, um, entrepreneurs, uh, as well as just tech enthusiasts, is that you really need to stop seeing technology as a static thing. We have a tendency in modernity to think of technology as a tree of, of things that you, you just 
a tree of fruits, if you will. You know, here is the cell phone, here is the computer, here is the mobile phone, and and here's the flying car. These are things you take from the tree and you put into society, and you imagine how the future will be different. That's not a good way to think about the future. A good way to think about the future is it's an ongoing conversation in which things are constantly changing in the process of this conversation between users, between inventors, promoters,、uh, punks. Um, uh, rebels, critics, saboteurs, hackers—all of us are in this conversation with technology constantly. And technology is not a static thing, but an evolving thing. When we talk about the implications of the, of the technology, the reason sci-fi often gets it so wrong is because they can only imagine what the technology will be used for from the perspective of of a very narrow. Um, single perspective, but the reality is the full implications of something will not be made clear until it's in society and it's being evolved in this joint conversation. Also, I want folks to to remember that technology is really about any aspect of human ingenuity made manifest and visible and tangible in the world. So that means technology is not just artifacts, not just certainly not just. Rocket engines and, and and computer chips. It's also all the soft stuff that we don't normally think of as technology. Language is technology. Calendars are technology. The way we think about time is technology. The organs of collective decision making are also technology. Legislatures, courts, juries, administrative agencies. These are also forms of technology. And I often think that by far the more interesting types of technology to think about are these organs of collective decision making and collective preference aggregation、um, of how to adjust and harmonize and promote the individual dreams of all of us living in society. Sci-fi writers have often written about far distant futures with. Flying cars and 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 immortality, all the rest of it, but we don't really do a good job of imagining future social technologies that help us make collective decisions and make collective policy better. Whereas, you know, in in some ways, that's by far the more important stuff.、Um, I often tell people that you know the most important technology in a society isn't really. How many cars they've got, and and how many miles of train tracks, and and communication lines, and cables, and fiber optic lines they've laid down. It's really about how healthy, and how functional, is the constitution that governs that society. And by constitution here, I mean not just a piece of paper, but the collective set of practices and stories and assumptions that an entire society. Agrees upon as the way for them to collectively proceed forward, and we just don't study these things nearly enough, and we don't pay enough attention to maintenance of these technologies, these very soft, ancient, and quirky human technologies. But they are by far more important than all the shiny new inventions of Silicon Valley, and and we stop paying attention to those. More fundamental technologies at our own peril. Well, we'll come back to the idea of a, of a national constitution in in a little bit. But I wondered if there isn't an analogy between your understanding of technology as something that you design but then has unpredictable consequences as it goes out into the world, 
uh, in dialogue with other members of society and storytelling itself. You know, when you write a short story, you write it with one or multiple intended meanings, but how the world then takes that story and how it finds readers is really up to them. You're absolutely right. Um, in fact, you know, I, I think storytelling is probably the most important technology that humans possess. We are pretty unique. Well, we're unique because we're the only uh, intelligent life form that we know about. But we understand the world through storytelling. You know, we sort of, we try to tell ourselves that, you know, we make decisions based on data, based on logic, based on syllogisms. But that's not really true. Um, fundamentally, what we are motivated by and what we actually draw on to make our most important commitments are stories. That's really it. Human beings, you know, we, we talk about rationalism and about what it means to make a rational decision to weigh the pros and cons. But what is a pro and what is a con? These are value judgments. And value judgments are fundamentally not reducible to numbers, to data, to anything of the sort. That's why, you know, economics-based arguments for moral problems always seem to us so beside the point and so unconvincing. We are fundamentally committed to our values because of stories that we believe in. A lot of these stories come to us from our culture, but a lot of these stories are also acquired by our own personal experience. The way we love someone and the way we understand what love means is shaped indisputably by the way we were loved in our childhood. And the way we understand pain and the way we pass on trauma is also based on the way we suffer and experience pain as children. Dickens was right uh, in the way that he talked about how your childhood shapes who you are in a very fundamental way that you cannot alter. We, are, we acquire our most important stories, our personal mythologies um, in our childhood. And then as we go on, as we become older, we stop uh, like Dante midway through life's dark wood um, and we realize that we are now not merely the heroes to whom gods and angels uh, pass on wisdom. We ourselves become angels and gods to those who come after us. And this is how generation after generation we pass on our stories and, and sustain a culture and, and build uh, something that has a larger existence than a mere mortal lifespan. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The time has come in the interview for you to tell us your story. So you were born into a family of scientists and engineers. Can you walk us through your early life and tell us how you became an author? 
So authors get asked this question all the time, and I always uh, say that people should be very careful about these stories because um, there is a tendency for us to shape our story, to narrate a story uh, that that makes sense uh, when reality is much messier. So what I'm going to try to do is to tell the messy version of the story rather than a neat, um, good story. So. In terms of storytelling, I mean, you can sort of say that people have always wanted to, authors have always shown tendencies to to be authors or to want to tell stories. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Um, you know, like most children, I told a lot of stories. I entertained my friends with stories. And this part is actually quite comical. Uh, I very much enjoyed David Copperfield because... Copperfield, as a child, entertained his mates with stories, um, some of which he read and, and some of which he modified in, in his recounting. That is very true to my own experience. I was an early reader, so I read a lot of stories before uh, my classmates. I certainly read more than them. And so one of the things that I did to entertain them at recess or on the way home was to recount these stories to them. And I would often modify these stories because I wanted to something about the story as I read bothered me. It was unsatisfactory, and I wanted to modify them in some way to, to have a better ending or to to have more conflict, you know, in the way that we all start by modifying the things that we love. But uh, to be honest, I don't think I um, ever imagined myself as an author. And much of my career was actually spent as an engineer. I started out working as a software engineer. And um, after a few years of doing that, I decided that I wanted to experience a different kind of engineering. Um, and I went into law. Law actually is uh, the fundamental code with which we construct the virtual machines of society. Um, in the same way that you know, software code runs the hardware, law is the software that runs the social hardware that we live through. And I practiced actually as a lawyer for close to a decade before shifting over to being um, um, a litigation consultant in technology cases. And that was when I seriously started working as both an author and a futurist. Um, I had always, you know, written and, and, and told stories as a hobby. Uh, but it was not something that I seriously pursued as a career. It wasn't really until um, the first decade of the 2000s that I started thinking that I wanted to maybe pursue this more seriously. Um, I started writing more regularly and, and trying to figure out what it is that I really wanted to do in terms of writing. And I realized that the kind of stories that attracted me um, shared a certain feature, which is I enjoy writing stories in which some aspect of reality that we speak of normally in terms of metaphor can be made literally true. So to give you an example, uh, we often metaphorically speak about how love changes the way you see the world. Um, love makes the world come alive in some sense, more colorful and makes things that otherwise seem to be dead feel alive to us. Things that otherwise are mass-produced become special. Things that are otherwise meaningless become meaningful. Um, we speak of this in a metaphorical sense, but what if that were literally true? You know, what if, um, say, that the memories you have about something, your experiences, literally change the object that you touch, that, 
that affect them in some way? What if your actual memories, your 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 emotional, your sorrows, your joys, your anger, your all the things that you experience, what if you actually leave a residue of that experience on the objects you touch so that you really externalize your meaning and leave your meaning on the objects you touch? And that people can actually feel these memories and they can actually feel them back when they touch these objects. So that's kind of the premise uh, for one of my most recent stories called The Cleaners, which you can find um, on Amazon. It's an Amazon original. And it posits a world in which that is true, that that people have memories and, and memories don't just live in their heads, but they're deposited on objects. And some people are more sensitive to the memories of other people left this way and some people are not. And I like this style of writing because you take a metaphorical concept, you make it literally true, and now you can play with it. You can sort of tease out all the ways in which reality isn't thought about normally. You know, as I mentioned earlier, speculative fiction is a way to twist reality to allow you to see something you otherwise don't see. When you when you apply a filter to the world that you inhabit, you start to see shadows and highlights uh, that you normally don't see. And I, I love that part of it. So a lot of my fiction, uh, especially early on, tends to be this sort of magic realist kind of approach where I take some aspect of reality that's metaphorical and make it literally true. Sometimes the metaphors are a little bit more magical, in which case you, you can call these stories fantasy or magic realism. Sometimes they're much more technical, and, and those can be classified as sci-fi. But fundamentally, all of my fiction is based on this premise of literalizing a metaphor. Um, and I find it incredibly fascinating. And I think it's really interesting in terms of the way it reflects how I think about the world and how I think people think about the world. So this month, you're publishing the fourth in a very ambitious epic fantasy series. It's the Dandelion Dynasty series. What is the elevator pitch? Okay, so the elevator pitch is, um, I, I'm hoping <laughs> this is simple. Um, I, I've had a lot of trouble reducing my, my books down to elevator pitches. Uh, it's one of those skills I never learned, and I'm just not very good at it. But, but here it goes. It's an epic fantasy in which the heroes are engineers, not wizards. And these are engineers of all stripes. And they're not just engineers who build machines. They're also engineers who build institutions. That's the elevator pitch. So if I can elaborate on that a little bit, there are a couple of things that are interesting, I think, about the Dandelion Dynasty. Uh, first, it has what I call a silk punk aesthetic. So what that means is the vocabulary and the grammar of the technology aesthetic that it uses draws very heavily on East Asian antiquity. So in the same way that if you write a steampunk story, you're... It's obviously a fantasy, but a steampunk fantasy draws on a lot of Victorian era technology vocabulary and grammar, right? You try to extend that technology vocabulary of steam, of chrome, of leather, of goggles, what have you, right? Of that kind of look, the Sherlock Holmes look. You, you take that um, and you extrapolate it to its most fantastical uh, evolutionary combination and that's steampunk uh, silk punk is similar you take 
the classical engineering of the Song Dynasty, let's say, um, and you say, okay, let's take that East Asian aesthetic of bamboo, of silk, of complicated mechanisms, of programmable looms, of mechanical carts, of lacquered puzzle boxes. You take all of that and you extrapolate to its logical end. What would it be like to build a computer using this aesthetic? What it would be like to build a self-driving car using this aesthetic? So you take all of that. That's the silk punk world. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is my background as a lawyer, right? My my obsession is with constitutions, with with law as a form of engineering, with the way we construct organs of collective decision making of of a stable and harmonious and also dynamic society that promotes the individual dreams and desires of every member. How do you think about institutions, about constitution making, about building a just society. So what I wanted to do in this part of of the theme is to explore a vision of modernity, sort of an alternate vision of America, where the mythological foundation of society isn't Rome or Britain, but rather classical East Asian antiquity. What if you can take that as your mythological inspiration and try to construct a new America based on that vision. So in other words, what if you can have an America that's not in some fundamental way inspired by the Aeneid, but rather by records of the grand historian? So that's what I did. You know, this is the Dandelion Dynasty is about the emergence of modernity in the silk punk world. It's about uh, a state that's very much like the United States, but it is based on a mythological vision uh, that's very rooted in classical East Asian antiquity and kind of rooted in that aesthetic. So another way to think about it is uh, Lord of the Rings token might be understood as a story about World War II based on the aesthetic and the mythological mental mindset of medieval European sagas. So this is a story about the emergence of modernity of, of a modern state like the United States based on the ethos of classical East Asian antiquity. That's the best thing that I can, I can say about it. Did you reach any new conclusions about the nature of modernity or indeed about the mm-hmm. United States as a result of writing this? I mean, how many words is the series as a whole? Incredible uh, one point of, million words incredible at this point. volume of, <laughs> of words. You know, you've given so much thought to this. What do you have to say? I, 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 I've lost count. Um, I mean, uh, I, I'll tell you, I definitely learned a lot. The whole series took me a decade to write. And between the beginning and the end, I changed as a person. And there's no doubt that the story changed as a result of the changes in me. Um, during the writing of the very last book, Speaking Bones, the United States, my country, was facing um, a constitutional crisis. There were actual riots, assaults on the highest institution of the country. There was doubt as to whether the Constitution of the United States would in fact survive. It was it was probably the greatest crisis to our institutions in more than a century. And it was incredible. And I watched it all happen. And there's no doubt that all of that ended up influencing the way I, I wrote the final book in some way. The final book is ultimately about survivability of institutions, about precedents, about constitutions in the sense that I'm describing it, which is the set of 
practices and stories that allow a people to say, we agree on these things, and these are the things that make us unique and interesting and different from every other people on Earth, in time or space. This is who we are. The crisis in the American Constitution is fundamentally not a technocratic thing. So, you know, there's a lot of debate in the U.S. over technocratic solutions to the Constitution, sort of like, you know, maybe we should change the number of senators, states, yet. Maybe we should change the number of judges on the Supreme Court. Maybe we should change the way elections are held. These are very technocratic solutions. They they show a school of engineering where the idea is, you know, it's it's just a small tweak. We just need to tweak something a little bit and, and things will function perfectly again. I don't believe these kind of solutions work. I think that when you have a constitutional crisis of the sort that we're experiencing in the U.S. now, it really reveals a fundamental breakdown in the national narrative. I think fundamentally, right, constitutions are really about stories. It's a, it's a collective storytelling exercise that all members of that polity engage in. Whether it's a nation state or a grand federation, there's always a collective storytelling act that goes on that defines what that thing actually is for the people. And in the U.S. right now, we have a huge debate over what the story of America actually is. There are people who would exclude uh, people like me. They would say there are real Americans and then people like me who are immigrants and therefore don't belong, who are not white and therefore don't belong, who um, do not hold to their narrow ideas about what being a true American means. And then there are other people who say, actually, you know, for too long, the American story has excluded and denied the voices of others who are important in the American chorus. We have too long centered one particular vision of what America means and told everyone else to change themselves to fit that one vision. But the reality is, you know, just as I don't believe that immigrants should be grateful to be welcomed. In fact, all of us should be grateful to each other for coming together. Immigrants have just as much to contribute to their new home as those who are already here who help them. We actually help each other. We should be grateful to our own collective coming together because it is our collective decisions that will shape where the country goes going forward. Now, I don't think these problems are unique to America. Certainly around the world, other societies are experiencing some variation of this same kind of crisis where people who have traditionally not had much of a voice or who have saw themselves, have seen themselves as not really uh, part of the core of society are now saying, well, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. Why should we always see ourselves as marginalized? Why should we always see ourselves as outside of the core? Maybe we are the core. Maybe there is no core. Maybe this is the way things ought to be. These are constitutional crises all around the world. There are some people who are terrified by this revolution. They're terrified by the idea that immigrants aren't just going to be grateful and say, you know, thank God that we're here. They're terrified by the idea of immigrants saying, actually, you know what, we are also, uh, we have as much say about where things are going to go as as anybody who was born here. We're all going to come together and, and, and build a society together. Um, it has to be collectively uh, work. It has to work for all of us. We have to shape our dream together. 
And this is what ultimately the last book in the Dun Dynasty is about. It's about the pushback from those who are terrified by the change. It's it's about the hopes and the dreams of those who believe that the future is better than the past, who believe that a vision of of collective diversity, true diversity, is better than the primacy of one and the submission of others. I believe in a chorus. I, I believe that this is the better vision. And so my book reflects that. You actually build the technologies that you depict in the series in real life, which surely must be a first in the history of genre fiction. Why do you do that? It is incredibly cool, but why? <laughs> it's really a lot of fun. So part of um, the Dungeon Dynasty is really about building cool machines, right? So as you mentioned, right, a lot of these uh, are, are based on classical East Asian engineering concepts, but you know, with a lot of modern ideas thrown in. So for example... Uh, the people in Dara, which is the name of the fantasy land that I created, they discover electricity, except they call it the silkmatic force because the first manifestation of the force was seen in rubbing silk uh, against uh, materials and creating that static electricity. So they end up building some very elaborate machines using electricity. Um, and I you know, wanted to make sure that these machines are in principle functional. So I decided to build some prototypes for some of these things. And uh, I have to tell you, not not all of it was um, sunshine and roses. So part of the effort involved building these very, very high voltage capacitors, what we would call laden jars. Um, they are primitive capacitors based on static electricity. And they can have very high voltage. Uh, and I wanted to experience what it's like to be shocked by one of these things because, you know, as part of my book, I, I describe how these things can be used as a, as a weapon. And I said, well, you know, one of the things I sort of have to do is to sort of experience a little bit of what it feels like to be shocked by one of these things. Now, I'm not going to shock myself too much. I don't want to kill myself, but I will shock myself a little bit. So I thought I had it all worked out of, of how this would be. But the real, the reality of it was actually worse than I expected. It, it was far more painful than I expected. And, and um, you know, as I found out, more dangerous than I had anticipated. I actually could have hurt myself. Uh, so I don't recommend that you do this. I don't recommend you build uh, very high capacity um, laden jars and try to shock yourself. It's not a good idea. Um, so just warning out there, don't do this. Um, I did it, but you know now I have I, I have real experience of what it's like, so I can write about it with some authority. Also, similarly, I built these Franklin-style electrostatic motors uh, to be sure that they function, and, and they do. Uh, they're really cool. Uh, ben Franklin was the inventor of them, that's why they're called that. But they they do their thing, and I wanted to see how to get them to speed up, to slow down, how to get them to actually move um, other things and, and, and how much power they can actually generate. Similarly, I ended up, you know, coming up with these ideas about object-oriented programming, if you will, in a pre-electronic computer society. And I wanted to make sure that these algorithms I created actually would function. So I had to sort of build analog circuits to try them out to see if these algorithms really are implementable and really what they, they do what they uh, what I say they won't do. And, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to be super precise here. I don't want to claim that I'm actually 
doing things with 100% engineering uh, realism and accuracy, my general rule was if I'm within an order of magnitude of the real thing, I'm going to claim that it works. You know, as a fantasy writer, I can get away with that. Uh, so that's what I did. But that's probably one of the most fun parts of writing the Dungeon Dynasty is just to invent and come up with these machines and try to build prototypes and see if they actually function. The most scientifically accurate epic fantasy ever written, perhaps. Who are the other authors whose work excites you at the moment? A lot. Uh, we sort of live in a golden age, really, of epic fantasy uh, in some ways and sci-fi in general. Um, somebody who I admire a lot is Kate Elliott. Kate Elliott is one of the most thoughtful, thought-provoking, deep world builders uh, I've ever read. She has, you know, I mean, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I wrote one epic fantasy. Uh, Kate has written dozens, you know. <laughs> this is somebody who really knows how to do this. Um, and all her books are incredibly intricate and wonderful, and they feature deep relationships, really, really well fleshed out characters and societies that are so intricately created that that it's just it's beyond belief a series that she has going right now is called um unconquerable sun and it's sort of a sci-fi epic fantasy retelling of the story of alexander the great gender bent and and gender flipped and i definitely recommend it uh this is this is just an amazing amazing space opera epic fantasy and it is so intricate in terms of its politics um and uh world building uh it's exactly the sort of thing that people who love epic fantasy would enjoy somebody else who i admire a great deal uh is my friend alex schwarzman and Alex is primarily known as an author of short fiction, and he is well known as a writer of humorous uh, sci-fi and fantasy. But he has a new novel out called The Middling Affliction, which is about somebody who is a middling, quote-unquote, meaning he is halfway between a magic user, a truly powerful magic user, and merely a mundane person. So he's in that in-between place. And he is tasked with protecting his neighborhood, uh, which happens to be Brooklyn, from supernatural forces. The Middling Affliction just came out, and it's getting wonderful reviews. And Alex is uh, uh, an author who writes with such panache and, 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 and humor and joy. It's a really fun book. I, I think that's what's, what's so exciting about it. It's a book that you read and, and it's just, it feels like you're going on a grand adventure and it's funny and it's, 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 it's joyous. It's positive. It's hopeful, especially in, uh, you know, if you're stressed out and a little bit depressed by the dark times that can seem to be around us. This is a great book, um, to cheer you up. What's next for you now that dust has settled on the Dandelion Dynasty? Ah, uh, well, I need to uh, uh, take a little break. <laughs> That's the first thing. Uh, but I have a lot of exciting things coming out very soon. AMC has a TV show called Pantheon, based on my short stories. Um, it's about a future in which human minds have been uploaded into the cloud, and it's about the consequences of that revolution. It's called Pantheon. And Beyond the story, uh, which I just sort of told you a little bit about, it's also unique because it's one of the first Western animated series aimed at adults. So traditionally, animated series for adults tend to be a, a Japanese, uh, Japan 
Panimation uh, sort of thing. We don't really do it very much in the West, but AMC is is experimenting and trying it. So I really hope that people love it um, and enjoy enjoy the series. I've seen the first season and it is fantastic. It is amazing. It's really fun, and、uh, so I really hope people connect with it. Other than that, I have a bunch of other projects. A lot of short fiction that I'm writing, a lot of film and TV adaptation that I'm working on, and I think I'm going to be kept pretty busy for a while until I can refocus on the next standalone long form、uh, piece of fiction that I want to write.、Uh, this time it probably will be a standalone novel. I think、um, I may not do an epic fantasy series again because ten years is a very long time to do one thing,、uh, and I did it. I don't regret it,、uh, but it took a lot out of me, and I want to try something different. Ken, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you on this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. Vas, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Ken Leo and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. I co-produced the series with Dana Outcault, and our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed listening, head over to our website where you'll find my interviews with Charles Yu, another Chinese American science fiction writer whose work I love, and a little further back, William Gibson. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>